We have had a number of weeks where we have been finding out that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And we've studied Zacchaeus and various other sinners. And one of the things we've quickly learned is that uh, sinners are inside the church as well as outside the church. And we have gotten strength from the preaching of these accounts of Jesus with the sinners to believe that Jesus loves us because we're sinners. And if he loves us being sinners, we certainly should love one another as sinners. Now, one of the ways that we know we're sinners is because of the way we handle our money. And uh, I know that many of you are sitting there thinking, well, I'm, I'm sure that's true of you and others, Tim, but it's not true of me. And before this morning is over, I hope to show you that you love your money. Not that I do, not that the woman or man sitting next to you does, but that you love money. And that will be good if I show you that, because then you won't feel superior to all the rest of the people here. But you'll realize that this sermon is for you, right? And we all want sermons that are for us and not for other people, because it's no benefit to us, right? Now let me give you a little bit of the context for this sermon for us as a church because every church has its own culture and its own challenges. Here's the challenge that we face here in Bloomington. Number one, when I was an undergrad at UW-Madison, it was such a relief that UW-Madison was a very large university in a very large city. And so it disciplined the pride of that university to have Oscar Mayer Wiener in town. You know, you can never have large thoughts of yourself as an, as an academic when you, you regularly catch sight of the little uh, wiener truck driving through town, <laughs> you know, and you remember where you came from and where you're going to. Uh, then there was the state capitol down, not the little county courthouse, but the state capitol down at the end of State Street. And then there were various uh, enterprises surrounding the town. Uh, um, Oh, I can't remember the name of it. A huge insurance company. I want to say Farmers, but it wasn't Farmers. But there's a huge insurance company that's stationed just outside of Madison. Huge. American Family Insurance, thanks. And uh, the problem with Bloomington is that The university owns this community. The only other competitor on any level at all is Cook. And because of that, every church in town has a disproportionate number of undergrad and grad students in it. Now, that's wonderful in one sense. If you're a church that wants to train women and men to be influential in the churches they go to and spend their lives, if you want to catch them when they're young and convince them that they should get married, convince them that they should have babies and raise them to glorify God, well, you're in the perfect place because you just have this unbelievable superfluity of students going through your church. And so you're constantly changing the world in a a way that other churches aren't. The negative is that typically when they're undergrad and grad students uh, is when in our lives we need the most instruction, the most counseling, the most encouragement, 
we need to cry our, the most tears. It's, it's an extremely difficult time in our lives. And so what that means is that this church both has wonderful opportunity in being able to form the leaders, the older women of the church, Titus II women, the elders, the deacons, the pastors. We have a pastor's college. We couldn't do that if I was back in Wisconsin at my former church. But here we can do it. But the problem is that we pour our lives into you, and you're poor. And there's an essential conflict between those two things. Because for us to pour our lives into you, we have to get paid. And yet, you don't have any money. And so typically, we're serving people who aren't able to give to the church. And what that means is that we have to hold on to our rich people. Rich people become disproportionately important in a church like ours. And that's why we love Chinese to come. (laughs) That's a joke. Would you explain that it's a joke to them, please? It's a joke. (laughs) Now, how do you hold on to rich people? Well, the way you hold on to rich people is you give them the best seats up front, but you know nobody ever sits up front in our church. And so then we we have reserved parking for them outside, but in fact here our reserved parking is, is for our mothers with children. Well, the way to hold on to rich people is you never ever rebuke them. And of course, that's what we do. And so it's very interesting that within a couple of weeks of when we moved into this building and began to pay the mortgage on this building, we lost our two richest families because both of them, in various ways, were being told no by the church. And so they left. And over the years, I have watched the rich people leave this church. Now, that shouldn't really surprise us because the Bible says that you can't love God and money. The Bible says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The Bible says that it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, Zacchaeus, as we saw last week, was a rich man. And so there are many rich men that honor God. As a matter of fact, there are many Americans who honor God, and that means that there are many rich men who honor God because all Americans are rich. Even the people on welfare in America, they're rich. You understand? But we still have a problem, and the problem is that everybody in this church tends to be poor while they're here, and then when they leave, they get rich. I was reminded of that this morning when I was uh, working to help a young man who, when he was a little boy, after our worship service, he would climb up on the bench on the piano. We don't let children do this anymore. But he would climb up on the bench of the piano and he'd sit there and he'd just run through the keys, showing everybody how excellent he was on the piano. But I knew that little boy was actually a lazy good-for-nothing. I knew he was very proud and very lazy. And so I wasn't fooled when he'd run through the keys on the piano. 
Everybody else may have been fooled. I wasn't. So one day I went up behind him, and I put my hands on his shoulder as he was sitting there. And I said to him, Abram, listen to me. You are a very proud little boy. And God has given you great gifts. You are very bright. You have natural ability in many areas. But you don't apply yourself in your life. You're not disciplined and you're not humble. And I want that to change. And that's what we do as pastors, as shepherds, all the time with you. We do it with little children. We do it with their parents. We do it with older people. We just perpetually give you information that you would rather not have. (laughs) That's our job. And the sweet thing is you love us for it. And I know you love us because I see your faces as I preach to you. And it doesn't matter who preaches to you. You love them. Now here's the problem. That little boy doesn't have any money when I'm rebuking him. But then he grows up and he gets straight A's because he learns to apply himself. And then he goes to dental school. But when he goes to dental school, he's up in Indianapolis. And so he's not here. And when he becomes a dentist, he won't be here. Right when we could use him, he's gone. And that's the way it always is in this church. Right when you reach the point where you can make serious money, you move to California. And there he goes. You know? The count, one, of, one, of the, uh, one of the attorneys at Microsoft. Endless, endless hours and days and years of caring for that man. But he's, he's out in Redmond. And what good is that? And so this is what we live with all the time. One year, we lost one quarter of our congregation in one year. That's how many people moved on to take jobs earning money. Now, what that means is there's no fluff in this church. No fluff. You must be faithful to God with your money if you're in this church. And don't think that because you're a student, that means that God doesn't need your money. Don't think because you're old. Don't think because you're poor. Don't think because you're a widow. There's not one person here that we can afford to have love their money. Because if you love your money, you won't give to my support. (laughs) Okay, to put a fine point upon it. All right. Now, I'll get back to me. But let's go to scripture for a few minutes. All right so that you have a context for what are. And what we are facing right now is we're out of space in the church, so we have a capital campaign. We're out of money in the budget, so you have to give. That's the reality. It's no problem if you'll faithfully give. No problem at all. All right, now, let's look at a couple of things in Scripture that will help us think about this. First, Luke 16, 10 to 14. And I'll make some comments as we go through these. 
Jesus talked about money all the time. He does never stop talking about money. Many of the things Jesus said about money actually are parables. They're stories he told where you have to enter into the story to get it. I'm not going to deal with that this morning. I'm going to deal with the places where he gets really didactic, really instructional, really specific, really direct, okay? Luke 16, 10 to 14, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. Now, that's not hard to understand, is it? He who is faithful in a little thing is faithful in much. What this means is that when Mary Lee and I were students up in Madison and dirt poor, so poor that we had no chairs in our apartment, we had no telephone, we had no table, we ate on the floor sitting cross-legged. And if people wanted to be in contact with us, they had to drive to our house and knock on the door. Then is when you begin to tithe. You don't tithe when it's easy. You know why? Because then you have many things and you will be unfaithful with big things and many things because you are unfaithful in little things. In other words, if you want to know whether or not you'll be faithful when you live in California or Redmond or Indy as a, as, as a dentist, look at how you act right now today as a student, as a poor person in this church. If you're faithful with little things, then when God gives you big things, you'll be faithful because you'll have learned to have it. So Jesus says he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. This is the reason I continuously, continuously press you to speak up for Jesus on the campus of IU. I just never stop telling you to do this. Why? Well, because IU is such a little thing. And if you're not faithful to speak up for Jesus on the campus of IU, how in the world are you going to be faithful when you're the budget director of the state of Indiana? How in the world are you going to be willing to die, to be burned to death, to be drowned for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, if you can't even open your mouth in your sociology or, your, or your, your chemistry class. Do you see? You will never be given the privilege of dying for Christ if you won't suffer embarrassment for him. Now, I know that that's a little weird for me to put it that way, but do you ever think about whether or not you'd be willing to die for Jesus? Well, take a look at how you act day by day, and you'll know. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Now, you know, do I really need to say anything about that? It's pretty obvious, right? Then he says, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, that's about the highest he has to say about money, unrighteous wealth, in other words, if you haven't handled, handled dirty money, you know, well, then he says, who will entrust the true riches to you? And what are the true riches? They're godliness. They're understanding the Bible. They're a prudent wife who is a gift from the Lord. Why would God give you a prudent wife if you can't even handle filthy lucre right? You know? You know? Are you with me? All right. 
And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? In other words, bring my tithe into the storehouse. If you're not faithful with God's tithe, why should he give you your money? Right? No servant can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. Now, I, I, I can't improve on that, right? You can't serve God and wealth. 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 That's the way that I exposit that text. <laughs> now, watch this. Remember, the Pharisees were the pastors of the day. They were the religious leaders. And the next statement is, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. Okay. 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 Jesus said what he had to say. And the religious leaders, the pastors, the elders, the deacons, the older women, they're good. What an idiot. What an idiot. You can't serve God and money. What an idiot. Next, Mark 12, 41 to 44. <laughs> okay, now listen. This is going to be uncomfortable. You ready? Everybody have their safety belt tight. You know, we're going to hit some turbulence. Right? Put your seat back up. Every single year at this church, what we do is we go through the names of all the members of the church. And we look at those names, the names of the men, so that we can see if there are men who should be deacons or elders, who should be officers. Scripture tells us there should be officers, deacons and elders. And Scripture says, don't make officers those men who love money. If he loves money, he can't be an elder and a deacon. This is what the Bible says. And so we go through the list of men in our church to see whether they love money. Now, how do you think we decide whether or not they love money? Yeah, we look at their giving to the church. So don't get upset about it. I mean, how on earth are we supposed to make a decision whether a man should be a leader in the church when the Bible says he can't be a lover of money? And the best way to show it is to see whether or not he obeys God in giving a tenth of his income to the church. And so we were doing that this week, and I would guess that of probably eight names that were mentioned for the office of deacon or elder, Half to more than half of them were polled because the men are not faithful with their money. And I know that you're sitting there thinking, whoa, names? And I say, yep, names. And so are you telling me that the men, all the elders know how much every man in the church gives? And I say, no, uh-uh. And you say, well, then how did you discuss names if they don't know how much they give? And I say, well, because there are several men who are so spiritual with money 
that we trust them to actually know what everybody gets. And then when names are come up on the board, there's this painful time in the meeting where everybody kind of looks over at those men and it's like, well, what about him? You know, nobody really wants to know. And he'll say, he'll say yes or no. Actually, there's a couple of them. And if it's a pastor or an elder or a deacon, who do you think knows? Me. Now, I don't look at the books, but there is a man who's spiritual enough with money that he will come and tell me when he notices that there's an officer who is no longer faithful, who's begun to love money, and so he won't give it to the church, right? And so then I talk to that guy. (laughs) And if I asked for a show of hands here, there'd be a few hands that went up. Now, why do I I bring this to your attention right now? Well, look look at the text we're going to read. It says, and he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent, calling his disciples to him. He said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow. I'm reading this only for the point of showing you that Jesus watched how much people gave He watched whether they were rich or poor, and then he had his disciples watch, and then he taught them as they watched how much each person put in. No, money is not private among the people of God because money is an area of greatest danger to us. If I were to tell you that when it comes to men and they are looking at pornography, we look at their computer, you would go, yeah, makes sense, right? Well, money is just as dangerous as pornography. And so we look at your money. We look at how you handle your money, and we don't trust you to be an officer of the church if you love money. And we know you love money if you don't give it to God. Now, I don't think that's a complicated thing, right? And so if you didn't know that before, now you know it. And so that's the second principle. The first principle is you can't serve God and money. The second principle is your spiritual leaders should know what you give. And so one of the principles here is sometimes we'll go and talk to somebody that we're concerned about them not giving to the church. And when we talk to them, you know what they'll say? They'll say, well, I I don't want anybody to know what I give. Now, you know what's wrong with that, right? If your husband closes his computer screen when you come in the room, are you supposed to assume it's because of his great godliness? Come on. Come on. No. The truth is that when we want secrecy with anything, it's because of our sin. A good conscience is always ready to be examined. A bad conscience refuses to be examined. 
And this is so basic, and I'll prove it the same way I always prove it, which is how. You all know how I prove this. I prove it by saying to you, can you imagine if you were sick and you went to the physician, the doctor, and he put you in an examining room and he said, take off your clothes. And you said, well, that's not right. And he said, what's not right? And he said, well, I'm not supposed to take my clothes off around anybody else. And he said, well, how am I supposed to examine you if you don't take your clothes off? And you said, well, it would be humiliating. And he says, yes, but I'm the physician. In other words, there are all kinds of things you put up with, with dentists in your rotten mouth, doctors, your rotten body, lawyers, your rotten practice of life. You're fighting with your wife. The lawyer has to know it. Everywhere. You think of, I mean, have you ever thought about your wife washing your clothes? I know you take it for granted, but just stop for a second and think about what your wife knows about you because she does your laundry. Come on, you guys. Elders are worthless if they don't know about you and who you are and what you do with your money. Okay? Okay? Does this make sense? Jürgen is an economist, and I was having lunch with him this last week, and he was describing to me uh, that, uh, that, well, in, in, in national finances in Europe, not national, international, um, there's a big debate over whether or not they should all be one, have one pot of money. And he said, you know, the pressure is on for all of Europe to have, what's the, 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 the label, the title? Yeah, they want fiscal union across Europe. Well, you know what? I'd like to have this fiscal union with Adam Spadey. Why? Well, a lot of you don't know, but it's because he's a doctor. Wouldn't we all like to have fiscal union with a doctor? (laughs) But in the EU, in the European Union, what they want is fiscal union without fiscal accountability. And so Jürgen's going around giving a paper where he argues that there is no such thing as fiscal unity or fiscal union where there is not fiscal accountability. There is no such thing as sharing the wealth if we don't share the decision about the debt. Are you with me? And so when it comes to the church, there has to be mutual accountability because in the church, the basic premise of the church is all for one and one for all. Because we belong to Jesus, I don't own my pickup truck. Doug and I own it together. Now, it's a little bit of a joke because he's my son-in-law, but I don't own my trailer. How many of you have used that trailer? Raise your hands. See, I don't own it. And some of you have used it a lot. 
so often that you had to repair something on it. <laughs> How many of you have used my home? Raise your hand. Okay. You see, all for one, one for all. That's why the Bible constantly says, practice hospitality. And if you know anything about sports, you know the meaning of the word practice. Practice your... Do you play the viola, Jason? Oh, 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 the violin. Okay. <laughs> practice the violin. Practice hospitality. All for one, one for all. Work at it. And so we own each other's garages, we own each other's cars, we own each other's lawnmowers, we own each other's pension funds, we own each other's ammunition, tree stands, venison. Four Point ran across the street in our subdivision this last week, D, just saying. Have you seen that Four Point? Okay. <laughs> Six, whatever. Next, 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 12. But godliness, and these are the words of Jesus, although they're written by the Apostle Paul, because all scripture is inspired by God, and there is only one God. So Jesus says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, for we have brought nothing into the world. <laughs> Stop, think about what that says. Have you seen a baby born? The baby brings nothing into the world. Nothing. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can't take anything out of it either. One of the only moments of watching television in my life that's been glorious was when an old black man was being interviewed by Johnny Carson, and he was the choir director for some program about an L.A. choir, gospel choir. And it was obvious he was godly. And Carson tried to pull him down to his level. And it just went on and on. You know, well, now that you've made it on television, I'll bet you have some young girlfriend. Uh, no, Johnny. And it went on and on and on and on like that, with Johnny just trying to make him as much of a wicked man as Johnny was. And then finally, Johnny looked at him and said, tried one more time. He said, well, you know, you must have lots of money now. What do you do with it? And this old man, this old godly man, this, this old godly man looked at him and he said, well, Johnny, he said, I give it all to my church. And at that point, Johnny Carson just gave up the ghost. <laughs> right? And he was just completely wordless, speechless. He had nothing to say. And there was this silence, painful silence. And then that man, that godly man, looked at Johnny and he said, you know, Johnny, he said, you can't take it with you. And it was, it was stunning. It was like even the television 
was doing the will of God. And you can't take it with you, and that's what it says here. It says, for we brought nothing into the world, so we can't take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And I read that to you, and I think, liar, liar, pants on fire, noses as long as a telephone wire, because I just said the word we. And I tell you, I am not content with a covering and food. You know? But that's what Jesus says to us. We shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Isn't that helpful? It's just so helpful. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. But of course, that's not what the text says. What the text actually says in Greek is, for the love of money is the root of all evil. (laughs) But of course, this is a Bible written for Americans. And so, of course, they'd change it. And so, instead, they translate it, for the love of money is a root, the indefinite article instead of the definite article, and then all sorts of evil, when all it says is all evil. And boy, there's so much weasel room in all sorts of evil that when you hear all evil, (laughs) you know, yikes, right? Yikes. All Bible translation today is an effort to take away the yikes of Scripture. And some, by longing for it, money that is, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, if it's just gotten done telling you that the love of money is the root of all evil, and then it says fight the good fight of faith, how do you fight it? You fight it by giving money to me. But not to me, to the church. To the church. And when you give money to the church, one thing that happens is I get a salary. And you all know that. That's not news to you. And that's why you're always cynical when people preach on money in the church. Because you say, well, he's just a merchant of spiritual longing. Transcendent values. And so when he talks about money, he's just trying to get more money for himself. Remember, I said I'd come back to me. Now, you may be pained to hear me put it that bluntly, but that is what people think. So let me defend myself, because the Apostle Paul gives precedent for defending himself. Right? He's under attack, and in the, in the epistles, he defends himself. So let me defend myself. First of all, I will tell you bluntly that I vastly prefer to clean windows and to use the pressure sprayer and to do all manner of work than I do to counsel you. And if you know me well, you know that's the truth. 
Because when I get done washing windows and pressure washing concrete, I can see what I've done. And I take pleasure in it. And when I get done talking to you, I feel like I've been hitting my head against a brick wall. Now, not always, but often. So that's my first defense. I actually like to work with my hands. All right, my second defense is this. If I had not gone in the ministry, I guarantee you I'd be a much richer man than I am now. Okay? If Jody had continued to play the viola, All right, the violin. If you, the baro, the baro, well, couldn't your parents get you a, a good one? <laughs> if Jody had continued the trajectory he was on when he came here from the Royal Academy of Music over in England, instead of wasting his life by going to the pastor's college and beginning to play a guitar... <laughs> he would be a much richer man. So I make no apology. When David Carell came here to work for us, he left Frito-Lay and he immediately took a pay cut of twenty dollars to $30,000 a year. Number two, you can say to me, well, you're lazy and so you don't have to work as hard so you're willing to take less pay. And I say to you, I am lazy but I actually work harder as a pastor than I would if I was doing another job. And you say, oh, come on, you do not. I say, do, 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 do. I do too. And you say, well, I don't believe you. And I say, ask anybody that knows me. You work much harder. Because for one thing, you enter into people's pain. And you cry with them. And, and you, you do beat your head against a brick wall with people for 10 years. Right, And so, I don't have as much money as I would if I weren't a pastor. I work harder than I would if I weren't a pastor. And number three, I don't have anything to call my own. Except my belly. Nobody's tried to take that. Well, Lawrence is trying. <laughs> Where are you, Lawrence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He loves me. He loves me, loves me, loves me. In other words, the doctors and the dentists are trying to get me to lose weight, and they should. Anyhow. And so here's another interesting thing. If you go to the Old Testament and you look at the tithe, the first 10% went to the Levites. Who were the Levites? The Levites were the ones that served the spiritual needs of the church. They were not allowed to have businesses. They were not allowed to have land. They had to live off the tithe of the people. And it was humiliating for them, and it's humiliating for me. I don't enjoy living off of you. All right? Can we just get that on the table? And then I think about the fact that it's so good that I live off of you because it humbles me. And I just can't be as proud as I would be otherwise. I have to look to you and to God to provide my needs. And if you are unfaithful in your giving, guess what? I, the one you support with your giving, have to come to you and rebuke you. 
And that's humiliating. Imagine if the doctor was the one that gave you diabetes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then you had to, like, rebuke him for having diabetes or giving you diabetes. It's just twisted, you know? So it's embarrassing, but it's good. Now, the principles are clear in the Old Testament. The first tenth went to the Levites. The second tenth went to the temple in Jerusalem during high holy days. You were required to bring a tenth of your income to the temple. So there's a tenth that goes to the Levites to support them. Then there's a tenth that you use to celebrate the holy days, pilgrimages. And then there was another tenth every three years for the poor. So actually, it was 23 and a third percent every year. Then there were all the sacrifices, the guild offerings, the thank offerings, the wave offerings. And so, listen, if you start with 10%, that's just so easy. And you say, but it's not, because I'm poor. And I say, no, you're the richest generation and the richest nation that the world has ever seen. So don't tell me it's poor. Tell me you love money. And it makes sense that the richest generation and the richest nation that the world has ever seen would love money. Now, a few practical exhortations. If you love your soul, you want to begin to be faithful with your money because you've heard the warnings that I read to you. You don't want to plunge your soul into danger. You don't want to turn away from the faith. Number one, start when you are selling textbooks on eBay. My grandsons over here, they go to half price and scan the books and then take them home and, and, and sell them on eBay, all right? Isn't that sweet? Start when you're doing a paper route, but we don't do that anymore because the papers are dying. Start when you're selling lemonade. Start when you get an allowance. Now, all of you, we're all weasels, and so when I say an allowance, you're sitting there thinking, well, my dad already tithed on that money he gave me. And so if I tithe my allowance, that would be perverse. And I say, tithe your allowance. That's God's gift to you. You tithe what God gives you. All right? Now, I don't have to tithe. Because after all, all I get is tithes. It's already been tithed. Wrong. I tithe. And then you say, well, on the net or gross. And I say, well, okay, you want to know? Okay, I feel magnanimous because I'm tithing on tithes. But I, you know, just so I can tell you I do it, I do it. But then I pull off 7.5%, you know, and then 7.5%, because 15% goes to FICA for me. I have to pay the government 15%, okay? And then you have, uh, well, my tithe, <laughs> you know? And so that's 25% right there that I just remove, you know, before I figure out my tithe. And then there's, there's my wave offerings and my guild offerings. And there's my gifts to the deacons fund. And, there's, and so by the time I get done, you wouldn't believe how little money I have to give to God. But I'm kidding you. We give a tenth. We start with a tenth of everything God gives us. Everything. 
We don't take off this and take off this and say, well, God wouldn't want that, and well, I don't feel right about this. And No, we give a tenth of everything God gives us. In the scriptures, it says every animal that passed under the rod. All right? Now, everything, starting when you're young, starting when you're poor. Now, as you get older, if you want to keep up with the widow, you better give much more than a tenth because she gave all. And you don't want a widow carrying more of the weight of giving to this church than you carry, (laughs) right? You want to keep up with her. So as we get older, we give more and more money. But you don't give money to missionaries that belongs to the church. Because the church supports missionaries. What a lot of you do is you have all these friends that have, that have said to you, will you support me? I'm, I'm a campus worker for a mission organization. Will you support me? I'm a missionary to Africa. I'm this, that, and the other thing. And so you just give money willy-nilly all over the place. And the church doesn't get your money. And the church doesn't know about your giving. And so they come to you and they say, we notice that you're not tithing. And you say, oh, I'm tithing. You just don't know about it. But we already dealt with that one, right? (laughs) That's convenient, right? And convenient things when it comes to love of money aren't good, right? And so you start by giving a tenth to the elders for them to decide And every year you vote on it, if you're a member of the church, you vote on the budget, and you submit yourself to the elders with your tenth. If you have extra money you want to give to your friends and to your relatives on their short-term mission trips, you feel free to do it. But the church owns that tenth. Now, as you get older, you'll be able to give more than a tenth. And as you get older, you will begin to give things in kind. Do you know what I mean by in kind? I mean like loaning out your pickup, loaning out your trailer. I mean giving the church your pictures. I mean uh, giving the church time, building its buildings, babysitting, playing, getting up early Sunday morning and coming to the church and playing. But if Jody looks at me and Jody says to me, I know I'm not tithing, but I do a lot of hard work for the church. What? So in other words, if, if you do a lot of hard work for God, you don't give him a tenth? I once had a man come in my office, and this man loved money. If there was ever a man that loved money, this man loved money. And consequently, he, he never had any money. And all he could ever talk about was how he had no money. And it was just a, a theme of his life. And he had the most generous, cheerful wife I've ever met in my life. And she served the church in every way you could imagine. And meanwhile, he was Scrooge. And he just wore on you, you know? People are always talking about how they don't have enough money. They just wear on you. And this wasn't in Bloomington. This was my prior life. And finally, one day, he was in my office, and he was standing at the door, and he looked at me, and he said, you know, Tim, I didn't bring it up. He said, you know, Tim, I don't tithe. And I don't tithe because of all the time and work that his wife puts into the church. Now, guys, come on. It's so awful. And the thing is, I knew that if he did tithe, that he'd stop complaining about money and that God would provide for him. Because you just heard in Malachi, 
Lawrence read it to you. Test me in this and see if I don't just pour out on you the wealth of heaven. Listen, I can tell you in my life, (laughs) it is absolutely true that when you give money to God, he gives you money in return. And I know that sounds horrible because you think I'm becoming a health wealth gospel preacher. But I'm not. I'm just telling you that I've lived long enough to see it happen again and again. And the most notorious case is my Aunt Elaine. Some of you remember little Aunt Elaine. She spent her life as a secretary in New York City living in an apartment. So she didn't own any real estate. And she needed somebody to care for her. She was failing. She was living all alone in Flushing, New York City. And she needed somebody to care. And so she went with my mother a short time, but that didn't work out. So, so we brought her into our home. And you all know, those of you who are here, we didn't bring her for money, right? You know that, right? Okay, it was, it was just not money. Uh-uh. And so she lived in our house for about six years. And the last two or three years, almost everything had to be done for her except feeding her. She, she was still able to feed herself. And guess what? When Annie Lane died, she left us money. We had no clue. And to show you we had no clue, we got less money than the other people in my family. So this had happened long before we ever took her into our home. She'd made the decision, because otherwise she would have changed it once we cared for her, because she would have been grateful to us, you know? Well, I mean, she was grateful to us, but anyhow. And so if you come to my home, many of you have been to my home, right? You know that big room where you're able to have meetings all the time, where you're able to have rehearsal dinners, where you're able to have showers, where you have small group. You know that big room? All of you know that big room? How many of you have been in that big room? That's a gift to you from Annie Lane through us. Okay? And that's how God works. If you care for the widow and the orphan in their distress, and you use your home to do it, and your wife doesn't have a paying job because she's caring for Annie Lane, God will handle it. Do you hear me? And so my wife lives her life to care for you. Do you understand me? And so does Annie Carell and her home, and so does Zebra Baker and her home. So don't begrudge God his money. Yes, a good portion of it comes to me. I tell you, I spend my life strategizing about how I can get some other church to take me for a year to relieve you for a year. And those of you who have heard me say that before, raise your hand. Look around here. I just think all the time, how can I keep from you having to support me? I'll go away to another church for a year. And then you can take a breather and love money for a year. Bring the whole tithe to God. The whole tithe. All of you. Those of you visiting, whatever church you go to, bring the whole tithe to God. 
If you get an inheritance, right away take a tenth off that inheritance and give it to God. Al Walker, the godly older man and elder of this church taught me that. Okay? And then give and give and give and give because the Bible says what? It says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. And then it says, so fight the good fight of faith. And what's the good fight of faith? Giving as much as you possibly can to God. Because the truth is, an insignificant amount of the money of this church goes to the pastors. And most of the pastors earn less than you'll earn the first year you're out of college. And it's only the old guys, David and Stephen and me, that earn a little bit more. And most of the money will actually go to training pastors for the ministry, to starting other churches, to writing music, to building a building that houses the children, the capital campaign. That's where the money goes. We don't live high on the hog here. And my home belongs to you. Okay? And so this is, this is a good church. This is a good church. So don't rob God. All right? Now, elders, is there anything you want me to add before we go to the Lord's table? The elders told me to preach this sermon. Brian, is there anything? Jody, you want to say something? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. There are two mistakes we often make. One is we wait until we have enough money to tithe, and it never works. Mary Lee and I tried that for the first year of our marriage and fought every month. So finally, we figured out you give the first fruits to God, and then you live off the rest. Well, there was a man in a former church who was a a physician. And one day his wife came to me, and she said, I'd like you to go visit my husband because I think he's, he's suicidal. I said, really, what's going on? I didn't know because he never came to church. And she said, well, he was a member of the church, but he never came. And she said, well, she said he got himself into financial difficulties. He was, he was playing footloose and fancy free with the accountant and his money. He had all these tax dodges, and the IRS came after him and caught him. And so now they've levied a penalty of 2 to $3 million on him. And he just doesn't see any way to climb out of the hole. And so I'd like you to go see him. And I said, well, how should I set it up? And she said, well, the only way you're going to see him is if you just show up at his office during business hours and tell the receptionist you're there. So, because I'm a pastor and I'm lazy, (laughs) I did it. And I went over to his office and I walked into the reception room, and the receptionist looked up and said, uh, your name, please? And I said, well, you don't have me down for today. I said, I'm actually Dr. So-and-so's pastor. Oh, really? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, do you have an appointment? I said, no. And she said, oh, really? <laughs> and I said, but would you just go ahead and tell him in between patients, tell him that his pastor, Tim Bailey, is out here and th- that I'm waiting to see him. And at that point, her hair was standing on end, and she did what she had to do. And a few minutes later, I was ushered back to his office, sat behind this humongous, beautiful wood desk and all the accoutrements of sophistication and wealth. And he said, well, how can I help you, Tim? And I said, well, I came over to talk to you at the request of your wife because I understand you're in real hardship financially. And he said, yeah, I am. And I said, so tell me about it. So he took 
20 minutes to describe unwise decisions he'd made and how he'd gotten himself in a bind and the IRS had come after him and now he had penalties and fines and he was in hawk now almost three million. And so I said to him, well, hearing about the condition you're in, I said, the one thing that I'm, I need to ask you is do you tithe? And he went, tithe? I make too much money to tithe. And that was the second time I've heard that in my life. The first time was a steam fitter union man up in Wisconsin. And I said, well, actually, I said, the truth is you make too much money not to tithe. And I said, so what you've done is you've robbed God and God is disciplining you because you love money. And I said, there's only one thing for you to do and that is for you to give a tithe to God starting right now and then plead with him for mercy financially and he'll take care of your needs. Well, he looked at me and I said, let me ask you a question. You've been working with an attorney on our elders board through this situation and I know that you're friends with some of the other men on the elders board. I said, haven't any of them ever asked you if you tithe? And he said, no. And I said, why not? And he said, well, none of them tithe. So then I said, all right, well, you do need to tithe. And so you need to begin to give money to the Lord. But I know that you're going to think that the reason I'm over here is because I want money for the church. And so you may not give any money to the church. I said, I will have it watched, and if you do, it will not be received. And that irritated him. Because, of course, he was used to his entire life being a function of what he could buy people to do for him. He always operated from a position of power. And so if he was going to give money to the church, he wanted to feel that he was getting something for his money, namely me and my gratitude. Because there is no such thing as a free gift. And so he said, are you serious? You won't allow me to give money to the church? And I said, that's right. I will not allow you to give money to the church. I said, you can give it to any other church in the community that's biblical. You can give it to missionaries. You can give it anywhere you want. But you may not give it to the church. Now, is that what you wanted me to tell? Or am I missing something? So what's the application? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he loved money, and I wasn't going to be a part of any... Uh... By the way, do you know where I learned to say that? Because nothing's original with me. I learned that from Clarence Jordan in Americas, who with his friends started uh, Habitat for Humanity and many other good works. Uh, he stood against racism in Georgia in, in the 50s and 60s. He was a wealthy white man. And he realized that racism permeated the Christian community in his neighborhood. And so he began to turn his back on the perquisites of, of white southern gentility. And he began to buy up 
land and to give the land to individual farmers, and they were black. Well, the people hated it, and they'd drive by and shoot shotguns in the front windows. He built these little houses for the people to live in, and he was just spreading his wealth around, and people hated it. Pretty soon, they couldn't get parts for any of their combines or farm machinery because the local implement dealers wouldn't give them any parts. And uh, it was the Hutterites from up in Canada who actually said, look, if you don't give them parts, we're going to stop dealing with, you know, Case or John Deere or whatever the name of the... And that's what got them parts again. Christians, right? Well, one day uh, at Koinonia, Clarence had a very wealthy woman from a northern city come and stay with him for a week, and she decided she wanted to live with him. And so she came to Clarence, and she said to him, uh, Clarence, I would like to uh, live here the rest of the years that God gives me, and I'd like all my uh, money to come to uh, Koinonia. And Clarence Jordan said, well, we would love to have you, but you may not give us any money. And she was furious, and she said, why? And he said, well, because then you'd always wonder whether we loved you just because of your money. And we don't want there to be any question in your mind that we just love you. And so she went back up north. Isn't that something? She went back up north and she did not become a part. And you know the end of this story is that when Jimmy Carter was president, I mean, there's so many things I could tell you about Clarence Jordan. He's a hero in my life. I don't think many of you know that, but I absolutely adore Clarence Jordan. Do you know that when Jimmy Carter was president, his chief of staff was asked, who are the men that are most influential in your life? And he said, two, Jimmy Carter and my uncle, Clarence Jordan. And that was Hamilton Jordan. You know, we think that God needs our money. He doesn't need our money. All he needed was for Clarence Jordan to stand. Do you know that one of the guys, I, I almost think it was the Habitat guy, his son got sick and he got leukemia. And so he was sent up to, to Boston, to Mass General or maybe the Children's Hospital, and pretty soon there was nothing left to do and he was going to die. And so he came back to the community. Well, everybody in the community that was white hated, hated Clarence Jordan. Hated him. And so Clarence Jordan... Uh, this man that worked with him, who was white, could, his son died, and they could not find anybody to bury that son. The pastors would not bury him. And do you know who it was who went to her pastor and said to him, you will bury that boy? Any of you know who that was? Anyone? It was Lillian Carter. I think Jimmy Carter was a horrible president. But what a wonderful witness his family had in that community in defending Clarence Jordan. What a wonderful witness Clarence Jordan had. And so you see, God doesn't need our money. He just doesn't need our money. What he needs is our love and our faithfulness. And now look at Habitat for Humanity. It's all around the world. 
you look at the civil rights movement, you think, what kind of impact did it have on the civil rights movement that Clarence Jordan gave up his rich Christian heritage and began to give little farmettes? And pretty soon, black families had fathers who worked and were independent. All right, sorry, but that's that whole story. You know, I tell the story of me with a doctor, and you think, oh, well, he's so wise. No, no, I just read a biography of Clarence Jordan when I was a young man. And that's another thing. Would you guys read? All right, all right. All right. <laughs> the name of the book is Cotton Patch Evidence. And it's a wonderful book. Another book to read is The Reluctant Defender. And that's the account of the man that started all these legal aid clinics in the inner city around the country. Chuck Ogren was his name. I know him. And he worked at a major loop law firm. And he'd play pickup basketball with the kids in the Cabrini Green project. Any of you know how bad that is? Cabrini Green. I think now it is the worst. At that time, the Rogers and maybe some others were bad. And these kids began to ask him to show up at the courthouse when they were going to have their trials so that he might have advice for them and help them. And so the stupid man, he began to go to the trials of these young punks that he was playing basketball with. Would the elders come, please? And you know, before you know it, you know what happened? He began to love them. <laughs> and that's really stupid. And so what happened was, and you know what's coming, right? What do you think's coming? Pretty soon he had to choose between the major loop law firm and defending young drug punks. And he chose the drug punks. And that's really stupid. Right? Right? Okay. I'll close the loop with one final story. So Mary Lee and I are dirt poor with sit cross-legged and no phone up in Madison. And we live in the ghetto and we're all alone, and we visit a church one Sunday, and the card doesn't have a phone number on it. It has an address. Everybody that knows the address knows it's off South Park Street. And any of you ever lived in Madison, you know South Park isn't a nice place inside the Beltline. And so we're at our house one evening, and guess what happens? Knock comes on the door. Open the door, and there's an elder and he's come, he's found our address, he's come into the ghetto to visit this, this young punk with long hair and an earring. That's who I was at the time. And this young woman who had a pierced nose, and that's my wife at the time. Okay? In other words, there were cultural reasons for him not to visit us beyond the fact of where we lived and that we didn't have a phone. And that man came in and loved us, and so we went to his church. Do you know I still know that man? You know that man's been helped to me all through my life. You know that that man was a professor of hematology at the UW Medical School. 
You know that man's name? That man's name is Bob Woodson. Look him up under hematology. Do you know he's given much of his life to figuring out how to have plasma able to survive without um, refrigeration for the sake of Africa? And guess who his brother-in-law is? Chuck Ogren. The Cabrini Green dude. All right, you ready for it to sing? Okay, ready? It's a small world after all. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. All right. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. And soon all those around can warm up to its going. That's how it is with God's love. And so, you know, we're little and we're foolish here and we have an ugly building that everybody thinks is a prison. (laughs) But man, do we love each other. And there ain't no place I'd rather be. All right. Gesundheit. 1 Corinthians 11. These are the words of the institution of the supper of our Lord, as they're given by the Apostle Paul, but by Jesus. I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, as in his name I give it to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. And after the same manner also, our Savior took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you, drink of it. For as often as you eat, This bread and you drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes again. I'm only worried about the table. (laughs) I'm making a mess up here, sorry. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, who has given us such a glorious gift of his wonderful Son, his dear Son, your dear Son, that partaking of the body and blood of Jesus, we may dwell in him and he in us. We unworthy sinners approaching your presence and seeing your glory to abhor ourselves and repent in dust and ashes, we have horribly sinned against you in thought, word, and in deed. We have broken our past vows. We have dishonored your holy name, and we are not worthy of the least of all your mercies. And yet now, most gracious Father, have mercy upon us. For the sake of Jesus Christ, forgive us all our sins. Purify us from all uncleanness in spirit and in flesh. Make us able from our hearts to forgive others as we plead with you to forgive us. And grant that after this we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your holy name. O Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. O Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. 
O Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world, grant us thy peace. Join me in the Lord's Prayer, please. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.